Last week we were looking at Zechariah 14. We looked at some of the prophetic things that were said and how Israel had taken them incorrectly, misunderstood the prophecies and began to apply them for the day that Jesus was there and the siege they came under when Rome came in 70 AD. Misapplying that caused many of the people there to die. So we looked at how can we know if a word is misinterpreted or a true meaning of the word from God. The word that they had that came from Zechariah was uh, 1 through 5 in chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the woman ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azale, Yes, you shall flee as, a, as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Didn't talk about this last time, but the earthquake in the days of Uzziah was not covered in the historical books, but here it is mentioned in the prophetical books. But we see that Israel was looking for the mountain to split and for an opening to, to uh, be given for them to escape out of the hands of the Romans. It was not because they misunderstood it. They misinterpreted a true word from God. In times past, we've looked at how to determine if a word is a false word or a true word. Last week, we were looking at how to determine if a true word is misunderstood or if it is rightly understood. Because a misunderstood word will bring you about as much harm as a false word. And we have to make sure that we understand them right. So, the four parts we gave you, First part was revelation. Is the word a revelation or a realization of things known or desired? Is it just something that I want to happen? Is it something that's just coming to my mind or has it come to my spirit? Isolation is the prophecy isolated from other words spoken or words written. That will tell you right away that something is wrong if we cannot compare it to other places in Scripture. If we have to isolate it. No, don't get into that. That just confuses things. That's not talking about this. So we have to isolate it. That's one of the things that will be done with people who try to pass off a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of a prophetic word. The third one was persuasion. Does the word encourage or enlighten our way toward obedience, correction, or his promises? Or embolden us to disobey or to self-righteousness by appeasing our flesh? What does the word persuade us to do? Is the word persuading us to do something good? Or is it persuading us to do something that the Word of God does not call good? The last one was separation. Is the prophecy separate from what the world thinks or is in agreement with? Now, this is not separation from Scripture. This is separation from the Word. Isolation covers us from that. Separation. Is the prophecy separate from what the world thinks? If people are selling you an interpretation from the Bible that the world is in agreement with, more than likely it is not right. Because the world does not understand spiritual things. It understands them in a flesh way. It understands them in a natural way. And just like the Pharisees couldn't understand Jesus' teaching, the world cannot understand what prophetic messages are for today. So keep those four things in mind. We use them just in this area of the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ to see if we indeed have just misunderstood a right prophecy So first off, we looked at the revelation. Well, it was a revealed knowledge to Paul. It was was not just the realization of things. It was something that Paul said the Lord had revealed to him and given, so there was revelation. Second, it was not isolated. Once we had the revelation, once Paul gave us the revelation, we could see it in the Old Testament, and we could see it, that there was room for it in Jesus' teaching. So it was not isolated from these things. The third one, we understand that it persuaded us to live in obedience and preparation for our master's return. Those are all good things. And fourth, we saw that the world scoffs at the expectation of Christians and mocks them for it 
Therefore, it is very much separated from what the world thinks. So if you'll do this with any prophetic message, you can pretty much determine whether it is a misrepresentation of the actual meaning of Scripture or if it is a true meaning. So let's go on here in verse 6 and pick up where we left off. We will finish off the rest of this. It all stays pretty much on the same topic. In verse 6, It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. Now the Greek, Syriac, and Latin versions have there shall not be light but cold and ice. I don't understand how they can get this. There is no rational means for them to get to this from the translation as I saw it, as I saw it broken down. But this is only talking about a very short period of darkness. It's not talking about an eternal period of darkness. We're going to look at some of the other scriptures that talk about this period of darkness. This short period of darkness would not result in ice and cold. We're not being isolated from heat. We're being isolated from the light. And then the light comes back on in later on. Now the ESV gets this translation from it. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. Somehow they're pulling from a source very similar to the Greek, Syriac, and Latin versions. But I don't see this supported anywhere, so I don't think that we should we should go to that. Now the day of the Lord does not start with the second advent, it ends with it. It doesn't start with the day of advent, it ends with it. It talks about the day of the Lord in this chapter, we told you how many times before, it was quite a few times that it referred to the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord does not start with the second advent. The day of the Lord will end with it though. So there's a number of days in which this is going on because they uh, we we covered some of it. It looks like he comes in and the Messiah comes in somewhere around the area of Edom. Some of the battle begins to pick up and then he comes down upon the Mount of Olives. So there's a number of days that this is all transpiring over. But it will end with the second advent, with his coming. When he comes down upon the Mount of Olives. The Olives, Mount of Olives splits in two and the deliverance is brought for the people in that battle. The time of darkness, though, is also described in other places. And I wrote those references for you in your outline. We'll read them here. In Joel chapter 3 and verse 15, the sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. Now, again, remember isolation. You don't want to be isolated from the rest of Scripture. And there's a lot of Scripture that does talk about this, so there's no reason why we should go away from them. That's Joel. Isaiah 13 and 10, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Matthew 24, 29, Immediately, this is Jesus' words, Immediately, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, when it says here in these references that they will not give their light, it might mean that the light is there, but they are not giving it upon the earth. That would mean all the other effects that the light would have would probably still be in, in a place such as heat and things like that. But the light does not come. Now this is God doing this. He can do it any which way He pleases. He understands the universe far better than we do. And we still don't understand what light is. We have some ideas about it, about it but we are not exactly sure what it is. If you want to break down this, uh, I remember way back in science class, is one of those things that I still remember that was outside the realm of biology. Light is neither a ray nor a wave. But it behaves like both. You have sound waves, and sound waves perform in a certain way, and rays are direct beams, and they perform in a certain way. But light can bend. It's uh, it's an amazing, uh, uh, amazing principle. The whole idea of light. It actually has uh, matter to it because it bends according to gravity. As light goes around a solar system. A black hole will cause it to bend because the black hole has, it's just an intense gravity. It's so strong, it doesn't let light escape it. That's what a black hole is. It's not actually an empty area of space. It's just no light can get out of it. But it actually can cause light to bend. So when astronomers are looking at the things in the sky, they have to account for light bending because it's not exactly a ray. So it's a, it's a really neat thing when you look at some of the principles that are out there. We still don't understand them completely. But we understand a little bit more than we did maybe 50 years ago. 
But God understands it completely. And so when he says it here, they won't give their light. We may not know exactly what that means now. But we will know when it happens. Revelation 6, 12 and 13. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth and, a fig, and as a fig tree dropped its late figs with its shaken by a mighty wind. So right here we have two Old Testament and two New Testament references. These are done by four different people. Four different ones gave this. We had Joel, we had Isaiah, we had Matthew, and then we have the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Matthew, of course, is writing the words of Jesus. That's four witnesses on this thing is going to happen. Four different times. Verse 7, Zechariah 14. In one, it shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. So that period of darkness will end and then light will come in. Now the New Living Translation, and a few others put it this way. I'm going to read the New Living for you. Yet there will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. There will be no normal day and night, for at evening time it will still be light. So somehow we're going to go from this period of darkness to a period of uh, permanent light. Isaiah 30 and verse 26 reads this, Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. Now, could you imagine that if the light of the moon was like the light of the sun? That would change your nighttime. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. In the day that the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. So he's talking about this day here that there will come a, a time it comes after the darkness that the light will be a permanent fixture. Now this will be, seem to be something different from what Hezekiah had. Hezekiah had a full day of sun. Remember he prayed for the sun not to go down? Well that was a different effect. It was a full day of sun on his side of the world. I don't know that anyone was living on the other side of the globe at that time. But if they were, they would have had a full day of darkness and had no idea why. In verse 8, And in that day it shall be that living waters, some translations read life-giving waters, there's actually seven, several that put it that way, shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth, in that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one. So this is going to come up out of the area of Jerusalem. There will be a new source of water. And I put a, a map for us to take a look at so that we can actually get a visual of this. And for those online, I am told that you can't see my nice little green dot that I put up there on the map. But right over here, we have the Dead Sea. Straight north is the Sea of Galilee. And this is the Jordan River that feeds the Dead Sea. What we're saying here is Jerusalem is out over this way. So from Jerusalem, there is going to be a, a new source of water that's going to come. It's going to be fresh water. And it's going to flow towards the Mediterranean Sea. And it's going to flow towards the Dead Sea. So it's going to flow in both of these directions. This is not going to connect the Mediterranean Sea with the Dead Sea. This is a direct flow from Jerusalem west to the Mediterranean Sea and a direct flow from Jerusalem east to the Dead Sea. That's where this will, will go. This is said to be life-giving waters. This is going to bring life into the Dead Sea so that the Dead Sea will no longer be dead. The, the, um, uh, there are people right now, this is probably a good example of misunderstood prophecy. There are people that are looking at the Dead Sea and they're saying that there are sprockets of life popping up. Maybe you have seen some of the reports on this. That the Dead Sea, when the waters, the fresh water would fall from the sky and come down, there would be little pockets around the Dead Sea teeming with life. And uh, they're saying this is the prophecy coming, tr coming true. That is so false. That is not the prophecy coming true. Just read the prophecy and you'd be uh, better off with that. But see, that's a misinterpretation of Scripture, and that's going to take you down a wrong road, because that's, God is not saying that the Dead Sea will become live now. He is saying that at the end of the tribulation, when he opens this up, that is when this life is going to come. Anything else is not the prophecy. That's just 
probably a natural occurrence that comes. The way that this is going to happen is that fresh water is going to come out from here directly over into the Dead Sea. It is now going to have a fresh source of water, of, uh, water which, which is uh, going to bring life back into the Dead Sea. So I did a, a little look up on this and I said, why did the Dead Sea become the Dead Sea? How did it, how did it die? How did, and it's really, it's, it's not necessarily dead. It's nothing living can live in it. And the reason for it is because of its salt content. So keep that map up on there. This is uh, what they're saying had happened. In this, uh, about three, they're actually giving me a date of 3.7 million years ago. I only have so much faith in, in that. But anyway, a long, long time ago, the area here, this, this whole area here, what would happen was that the Mediterranean Sea would, would flood this area and fill up the Jordan River. The waters would flow into the Jordan River. When they would do that, that water would come down into here to the Dead Sea, and it made for a, a very large uh, sea area. But this would constantly be happening, so fresh waters would constantly be coming in from the Mediterranean Sea. And so that's how this thing had become filled. Then later on, about uh, 2 million years ago, the land between here, the land in this area, the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, things happened with the, uh, the plates, and the plates began to move and to shift. And what happened was that mountains and high places were, our high areas were formed in here instead of the low plains that it once was. So the flooding never happened anymore. The Jordan River never became filled up with the water from the Mediterranean Sea, thus stopping the flow that would come down into the, the Dead Sea. So apparently there was enough of a flow coming down into the Dead Sea that the Dead Sea then had a runoff into other areas. Now, other things also began to happen in all this period of time and more settling and more uh, things occurred so that the area of the Dead Sea that houses this, it actually dropped lower. It is now one of the lowest places on the on the planet. It does have the, the water still in there, but it is uh, further below sea level than most uh, places on the on the planet that are still land. Now, this, of course, has all that uh, seismic activity. You remember the things that happened with Sodom and Gomorrah? That was all in this area. So it sank down lower, and then the Jordan River would flow into it, but nothing would flow out. So when that happens, and this is a desert area, they don't get a whole lot of rain down in there. The only thing that would come was the stuff that was coming from the Jordan River. So the Jordan River would feed this area, and the minerals from the Jordan River and the minerals that were already in there stayed but no water was coming in to dilute it. And so they just kept building up and building up. And over a period of uh, many hundreds of thousands of years, maybe a million years, it just uh, is so built up that you going down there, you see all along the edges that there are salt and uh, minerals all over. And that's why, because they keep flowing in, but they're not going out. When the fresh water comes in from this river, it's going to flush it and it area, the area there will be teeming with life again. Now, here's an interesting note. If you have ever heard any of these false things that are going around about the Dead Sea, people are saying, and you can imagine which people are saying this, that climate change is causing the Dead Sea to dry up. Now, most of you will laugh just uh, right from that. And they'll show you maps. Here's the Dead Sea in 1970s. Here's the Dead Sea in the 1980s. Here's the Dead Sea in the 1990s. And each year, each of those decades, it's getting smaller. And they will use that as evidence to show you that climate change is causing this thing that has been here for millions, millions of years is now suddenly getting smaller. We're obviously the cause. What they leave out by showing you the pictures of 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000, what they leave out is that in 1960, somewhere in the 1960s, I don't remember what year, they decided to pass legislation and to divert waters from the Jordan River for other growing things to, to irrigate and to uh, water people and, and so forth. So from 1960, water from the Jordan River has been diverted. Water that was originally going to guess where? The Dead Sea. They cut off the source and now want to blame climate change for why it's shrinking. <laughs> you got to really just not believe these things that these people want to try and pass off here. It's, 
It's just not, uh, it's not there. Anyway, Ezekiel chapter 47. I didn't put this in your outline. If you want to go in there and read it over later on, Ezekiel 47 verses 1 through 12 describe this, this, um, river more extensively. So if you want to have, uh, some, some reading to do, it's not too long ago we covered Ezekiel 47, but that talks about that river that comes now in Revelations 11:15, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, "The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forevermore." The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord. In verse 9 of Zechariah 14, it said, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and His name is one. These are the same thing. This is talking about the exact same thing. The seventh angel sounded, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. So at that point, all the kingdoms of this world have become His. Remember, the devil offered all the kingdoms of the world in the temptations. He didn't take it. Because he knew this is when they're coming back to me. And now it's here. So the earth will not cease to be the Lord's. From here on out, the earth will be the Lord's. That's what the Revelation tells us. And he shall reign forever and ever. He will not give up his reign over the earth. Verse 10. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon south of Jerusalem, Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her, in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. So the places that are mountains now are going to be flattened. All this area around Jerusalem will become a plain. Right now it's not that way. But then it will. The New, tra- the new Living Translation says, but Jerusalem will be raised up in its original place. The ESV says, But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site. Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site. So Jerusalem is still going to be elevated and all the other areas are going to sink down. That's what God's going to do. He's going to sink all the other areas down. But these, but the area of Jerusalem, it will stay elevated. It doesn't need to be elevated for protection. But it will remain elevated above all the other places that are there. This is what he's telling you that's going to happen. He says, All the land... So he turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. So this is our location. So Geba, you may have uh, remembered that Geba was mentioned in the in the Bible before. It's a northern boundary of Judah. And it says it's going to go all the way down to Rimon in the south. Now, he is saying Rimon in the south because we have to distinguish this. There's a Rimon from a town of the same name in Galilee. You'll find that in Joshua 19.13. And from the famous rock, Rimon, to which the Benjamites fled in Judges 20.45 and Judges 20.47. You'll see that over in there. In verse 11, The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So the people are going to still dwell in Jerusalem. No longer shall there be utter destruction. There won't be any destruction anymore. And I have a better translation for you. This I want you to see what it actually says here. The ESV puts it this way. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Now, it says it this way because the Lord, once He takes over this reign, will reign forever. And He is saying, since I am reigning forever, I will never utter the words of destruction upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall not be destroyed. He's saying, I'm not going to utter that. Now, he knows the end from the beginning, so he knows he doesn't have to. He knows what's coming down the pike. So it's because of who is king that this won't happen, but also God will not pronounce judgment on the city again. Verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Now we're going to get some interesting stuff here. It hasn't been interesting yet. We're going to get some interesting stuff here. The flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Now, if you have ever watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, 
This is probably where they got the inspiration of it from. When they opened up the ark and that came out, uh, that is probably what, the, what they got was this. But this is a plague that God dispatches. Verse 13, And it shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and rise his hand, or raise his hand against the neighbor's hand. The ESV puts this verse this way. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of another. The NET reads this way. On that day, there will be great confusion from the Lord among them, and they will seize each other and attack one another violently. There will be a panic that comes upon them, and they will begin to wipe each other out. We've seen this before. You remember back in Judges chapter 7, the Midianites did this, and they wiped themselves out. Later on in uh, 1 Samuel, the Philistines did this, and there was a, a great slaughter of people that were there. So this has happened before where the panic came down upon people and they began to slaughter each other. But I began to kind of ponder this and I can't prove this and I don't know that anybody else has ever proposed this as a possibility. But I say that there's a reason for the panic. The reason for the panic would be the people who come together for this battle. It says while they stand there that their eyes dissolve in their sockets and their tongues dissolve in their mouth. Now that's pretty violent. And I'm pretty sure that in Zechariah's day he cannot even imagine anything like this happening. But that is not true today. We can imagine this happening. And there's this particular way that this happens. Anybody want to take a guess at what it is? Biological warfare. It could be biological. It could be gases that are, that are put out. But we have the ability to cause this to happen to people. It does not have to be nuclear. And nuclear does not discriminate. This seems to discriminate because there are survivors from this. So, this is not from biological warfare. I am not telling you this is any kind of biological warfare. What I'm telling you is, this is a plague that comes from God. But how many times does something that comes from God viewed as coming from God by the world. They don't go all the way back in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh had things, plagues that came from God. And he kept looking at natural things. His magicians could do the same thing. It's not God. Not God. We're not going to submit to God. Anybody could do that. The world looks for natural reasons for spiritual things happening. So I, this is my thought. Since these verses are right next to each other, the plague comes, doesn't kill everybody, but it kills a lot of people. And this is a, a bunch of nations that have come together. If you've got a bunch of nations that come together and something happens that could be attributed to biological warfare or some kind of a gas that is um, let loose, what do you think would happen? Let's just pick two countries just for fun. Let's say that Iraq is there and Russia is there. And the Russians people start dying. Who do you think they blame? Russians? No, they pick out one or the other. Did you bring with you some kind of a new gas, some kind of a new biological weapon? And did you not keep it where it should be? Did you release? No, we didn't do that. I, we think that you did it. And they begin to get mad at each other and accuse each other. And they begin to go after and slay each other. Could you see that scenario unfold? I certainly could see that scenario unfold. But the Lord says this is the panic from Him. They're going to find a reason for it. They're going to find a cause for it. But then they're just going to fall into this panic. I mean, it is just stupid what they do. And they just start slaughtering each other. If you look at the other times this happened in the Word of God. With the Midianites, there was a reason behind it. With the Philistines, well, there was a reason behind it. It came out to be a stupid reason. But still, there was a reason behind it. A reason that started the panic. A reason that started to get the kings to all... Uh, Go after each other. So if this plague is not seen from the Lord, and it probably wouldn't be seen from the Lord, even though I'm sure that his prophets are talking about it coming, probably even warning some people, but they're not going to believe that. And so this 
this plague came, but it does not wipe all of them out. There are still survivors from this. Verse 14, Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. So it would seem that the plague, when it comes, it weakens the enemy. Now their deaths are quick. It's not a slow thing. They just kind of melt right there on the, on the field. And it's, it's fast. It's effective. But it's not wiping out all of them. It doesn't seem the intention was to wipe out all of them. If God intended to wipe all of them out with this, then they all would have been wiped out. So once that happens, the rest of Judah seems to join in the fight. And they come in outside of the city and they come on over and join in the fight from where they are. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Now you remembered earlier that they were dividing the spoil before they had even finished the victory. They got halfway through conquering Jerusalem and they began to count the spoil. Zechariah's prophecy was talking about that. How they were halfway through and they were sitting there counting the spoil. So Israel's going to come in and they're going to take all that spoil back that they were counting, that they had taken from Jerusalem and from Israel. And they're also going to take all the spoil that they brought with them. So they're going to have all that there, all the gold, all the silver, all the apparel. Great abundance, it would seem. Verse 15, such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle there will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. So a plague is going to come upon the animals too. doesn't need to be the same plague, but a plague is going to come upon them and the horses and the mules and the camels, all these things, they're going to die as well. They brought them along. They had purposes for them, but those purposes are going to be lost. Now, in the Old Testament, I believe I gave you the references there, at least it's, it's still in my outline. In the Old Testament, the animals came to the same ill fate as their owners. Many times there was judgments that came upon even people in Israel. If they came and people in Israel, God would say, well, put them all out there with all their stuff. And them and all their stuff went down into the earth or burned up in fire, whatever happened. The fate of the animals was the fate of the people that owned them. You may say, well, that's not fair. Well... That's what happened. Now, the, I wonder about this. People often ask if the, what the fate of young children will be. Is the fate of young children the same as their parents? Does this verse give us a hint of, of that? Well, I don't know that it necessarily would. We know that the animals will fall, but the animals don't have a, an ability to have a free choice. They don't have an option of redemption. Christ didn't die for animals. He was a human. He came down as a human being to offer sacrifice for us. I still hold to the part that children are redeemed until they individually rebel. So even if they are born to unsafe parents, I still don't think that they fall to that fate until they follow in the sins of their parents. And so they rebel against Jesus as their parents had done. Their parents will teach them this. They're in an unsaved home the parents are going to teach them rebellion. It doesn't mean that they all will follow. The Word of God has many people that were brought up under rebellious parents who refused that rebellion and went after and followed God. And they changed that, that direction for themselves. I know in the video teaching we had, uh, Sister Lisa was talking about some generational uh, sins. And uh, I'm not afraid of that term. But do not I don't hear it this way. I don't know how she hears it. I can't attest to that. I don't think she hears it in a wrong way, but I know some people can and do. That, well, my parents did this, and so I'm just, I have to, I go this way because they did it. So it just comes upon me. It's a generational sin. It's a generational curse. No, you learned it. You learned to go out. You learned to doubt these things. You learned to believe these things. You learned to do these things. You can break that, that cycle anytime that you want to, as long as you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit for it. So parents teach their kids the sin of the, you know, dad's got full of pride. If the mom's full of pride, they can pass that pride on to the kids. And they'll follow in that as well. They won't go in the way of being humble. But you can unlearn that. You don't have to follow in those things if you, if you choose that way. But children, are, they come to a place where they make a decision on their own. Well, I'm going to continue to, I'm going to follow after what my parents are doing. I'm going to follow after the, going after the sin. And when they do that, then that's when they move themselves out from underneath that umbrella. That's, I can't say that's doctrine. I think there's some places of Scripture that do seem to indicate that might be true. But God is is God. 
and God will do what is what God knows to be right. Verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, so not everybody died. There are still some people who are left of the nations which came against Jerusalem. They shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So he tells you right here that there are some people on the earth. These are not people that are in heaven. These are not people who died or are coming back. These are people that are on the earth which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king. Now it says here came against Jerusalem. That to me is interesting. That seems that they were they were against God. I don't know what they did that they are still there and they not haven't died yet. But anyway, they're there. And it says that they shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to the Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. The family of Egypt will not come up and enter in. They shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So as far as a plague is talked about here, it's basically a plague of, of no rain. Now the Feast of Tabernacles is the one that's being discussed here. What is the significance of this festival? Why of all the seven feasts is this the one that they observe? Is this the one that they're called to to reserve. This is a feast that reminded the Israelites that they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And that during that time, even though it was a time of judgment, it was a time of chastening of the Lord, they were perfectly provided for in that period of time. Even though it was judgment, they were in a place of judgment for God, for God was judging those who decided not to believe Him, and they were falling and dying in the wilderness for those 40 years. But even in judgment, God showed them mercy. This feast talked about that. This feast taught them that. It showed the Israel's past deliverance from Pharaoh and Egypt and the temporary man-made shelters they had that connects Israel's future deliverance from Antichrist in the tabernacle and the permanent God-given sanctuary. So there's a lot of, a lot of past and, and future that was involved in this. Ezekiel depicts the method of this future tabernacling with the return of God's Shekinah glory in the temple. That's in Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 7. And Jeremiah reveals its results as Jerusalem becomes the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall be gathered unto it in Jeremiah 3 and 17. Now the Feast of Tabernacle depicts the promise that God's presence will dwell with Israel in the future as it has in the past. A couple of references for that are in Haggai 2, 5-9 through 9, and Zephaniah 3 and 15. So I did a, a look up. I, I, I pulled this out. This is describing the, uh, the, the feast here of Tabernacles. I'm just going to read this for you because I won't do it as good a job as what was written here. Sukkot also celebrates Tabernacles, also celebrates God's provisions of refuge in the wilderness and recalls his promise to rescue Israel at the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7, and restore the nation in the future king, Messiah. At a special ceremony called the Water Drawing Festival. Now listen to this part. This, this, is, this is why I'm reading this to you. I thought this is real interesting. At a special ceremony called the Water Drawing Festival, water from the pool of Siloam was carried to the temple and poured over the corner of the altar. A ritual based on an oral tradition dating to the time of Moses. And there, there are some references for it. I would read them, but they won't mean anything to you at all. <laughs> they don't mean anything to me. But I think they're uh, uh, referring to some Jewish documents. But they date this back to the time of Moses. The ritual's significance was symbolic as it was a prayer for the rain since the summer was about to end and the rainy season begin. This prayer demonstrated Israel's dependence on the Lord, an act of faith that will be required of all nations in the millennium. 
Now, when I read that, that made a whole lot more sense. While this is the one, and if you fail to show up for it, the punishment was no rain. This is not something that was in Scripture, but it dates back to Moses. So in my mind, if it dates back to Moses, Moses got it from who? Moses got it from God. So that's that's as close to being um, up there with Scripture as I can come to. If you can, if Moses is the one who put this. But you can see, God brought this tabernacle, the, the Feast of Tabernacle, into this for some reason. And he, he says, in his words, the punishment will be no rain. And since that oral tradition ties the rain in with this festival, that made perfect sense for this whole thing for me. Now, if they come year to year to off, to uh, observe the Feast of Tabernacles, that would mean they do so for 1,000 years. 1,000 years. Now, what's interesting is, of all the feasts of Israel... This is the one that was neglected. They did all the other ones, but this is the one they neglected. Very seldom did people come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. You saw it in, in, in Moses, I believe it was Solomon who resurrected the, the Feast of Tabernacles and tried to, to bring that whole thing back in. And then um, over here in the, in the book of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, we see it resurrected again. But it had been greatly neglected. Now, what happened in Israel's day when they neglected the Sabbaths? The Sabbaths for the land, the land Sabbaths. Remember what happened when they neglected the land Sabbaths? Well, God says, well, you neglected 70 years of land Sabbaths, so (laughs) you're going to get 70 years of captivity so the land can get its rest. He gave the land back to, to all that. So maybe this thousand years is them making up for the times that they didn't observe this. I don't know. But they sure have been missing an awful lot of those particular feasts. Now here's the thing. We've got a lot of people who've taught things on the Millennial Kingdom based on prophecies and I'm wondering if some of these things are a little misunderstood. Because I I put this as a blank in your outline because I didn't want to give it to you yet but disobedience seems to be possible despite the general interpretation of the millennial reign. Now we know this because, first off, it said that he will rule the earth with, anybody remember what? A rod of iron. Why do you need a rod of iron if everybody obeys? You don't need a rod of iron, do you? Why do you need a punishment if people don't show up for the feast? If everybody's just going to obey, so I think the millennial reign is a little bit different from how we expect it to be. So with that, let's go back to the Revelation chapter 20 and let's just read over the millennial reign. Verse 1 through 10. Don't have a whole lot of verses in Revelation on the millennial reign, but we have some. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was a devil, and Satan bound him for a thousand years cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now we can get into that too. He must be released for a little while. So Satan will not be around to deceive. It didn't say he bound up all the other all the other uh, false angels but I, or fallen angels, but I'm not sure what goes on with them. But Satan won't be around to deceive. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Where is Christ living? In Jerusalem. If Christ is living in Jerusalem, where are these living? In Jerusalem with Him. So, that gives us the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What about the rest of the world? Who inhabits the rest of the world? Well, apparently, other people. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So it's not them. 
Those are the people that are dead that are in hell. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So the, do the people that Zechariah describes that are alive at the end of the tribulation, do they form a group of people and nations who will be reigned over? Is that the, the other ones are reigning, so they have to be reigning over somebody. Are they reigning over the people that were alive and remained and are here? Now verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them and the devil who deceived them was cast in a lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not a whole lot of verses on this time but we have nations that are mentioned so nations are mentioned what I really think is is interesting is this going back here yeah there it is okay verse 8 and I will and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth so all four corners of the earth are inhabited by nations Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea the nations on the earth are described in the Word of God as the sand of the sea. Where did we ever see that terminology used before? Abraham's descendants. And we know that they were numerous. There were multiple millions of, of, of them. And all throughout history. And they would kill them in the, by the millions and they would still be around. If they are by, as the sand of the sea, that's going to mean... Think about this. The end of the tribulation, how many people are alive on the earth? Think of the period of tribulation. Think of all the, the calamities that come upon it. The pestilence. The, uh, the meteors falling. The, the poisoned water. The, all the different things that are going on. One third of the earth dies. Half of the ships are destroyed. All of the fish are gone. All, all these things that are going on. Man, all kinds of death is going on. And then here on the last day of battle, we have people that are just melting. But there's still some, some that make it through. So if we go from the point at the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, where there's a bunch of people that are still alive, a bunch of other people that are ruling and reigning with Christ, people that are still alive, and now we have them as the sand of the sea, would that lead you to a conclusion that over this thousand years people are having babies? It leads me to that conclusion that people are having babies. Because the question always comes up, especially down there in Zoe South. <laughs> she always likes that question. Who is it that's going to rebel? And I believe it's going to be these people. I don't think it's going to be those that are ruling and reigning with Christ. The people that are going to re rebel are the same people, descendants of the same people who came and gathered to battle here. But they will have an opportunity now. They will have 1,000 years of ruling, of, of Jesus Christ ruling over this world. 1,000 years. 1,000 years of coming to Jerusalem and to worship Jesus. 1,000 years. They know if we don't come and worship, we will not get any rain. Now, this brought me to, well, we have a place we'll, we'll get to that. I, I throw out some questions for you. But we'll wait on that one. Now, some people, they just don't learn history. If they will learn history. This is, this is how this whole thing started. We all rose up. And we tried to fight against Messiah and it didn't work. So at the end of a thousand years, we're all going to do the same thing. But I know that right here in this place, there are three things present. In this millennial reign, there are three things present. First off, there is self-will. The will of the Lord is not the only thing. And there is no devil to tempt them. They decide to disobey 
on their own. Now, the only disobedience we have laid out is if you don't come and offer sacrifice, worship the Lord, feast of tabernacles, no rain for you for the whole next year. You can repent all you want to. You don't get any rain. There's free choice. There is still free choice. You still have the ability to choose whether you want to worship or not. There's just, here's the third area, reward and punishment. Reward and punishment. Now, I did make a note in here that from the time of Joshua's times up until Solomon, when they finally began to uh, follow after this feast in Solomon's reign, that was about 500 years. You think you can find 500 years after Solomon's reign in which they did not observe? I bet you you can. They were observing it in Jesus' day. Now, it would be it would seem that this time is training the people to obey the Lord. Once you get that idea, I'm going to give you a thousand years of training to obey the Lord. The, the Israelites had 40 years of training to obey the Lord. They're going to have 1,000 years of training to obey the Lord. And at the end of 1,000 years of training, there are going to be those who rise up and disobey. Break 1,000 years of training. Now, I have some unanswered questions about this time. You may not want to write these down. I don't have answers for them. I have not been able to find answers for them. But if food shortages can be a problem, can people die? How many of us have been taught that during the millennial reign, nobody dies? If people can die, what would happen to them if they do die? Where do they go? Are we going to deal with homeless or lazy, unemployed people? Human nature would tell us we are. What happens to people who decide, I don't want to work? We know from the parables that Jesus' idea of people who want to be lazy is not real high. There's one more if you want it. If the world then goes on as it does now, just as with Jesus as king, are births hard to imagine? And I don't think they are. We kind of already covered that one. Let's finish this off. Verse 20. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now that's his sign-off. That is the last verse of the book. In that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Interesting sign-off. In Exodus 28.36, this very inscription, Holiness to the Lord, was on a metal band around the high priest's headpiece. They would inscribe this on it. It was a gold metal band and it had this engraving on it. You can, I believe I gave you the reference there. You can look that up later on if you want to. But it said exactly this, holiness to the Lord. What he is saying here is we're not just going to have that on the high priest heads. We're going to even have it on the horse's bells. It's going to be all over the place. Holiness to the Lord. He says the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. I mean, what in the world does that mean? It means since the pots and the bowls belong to the Lord because everything belongs to the Lord, everything is holy. And when he says there's no Canaanite in the house of the Lord, it's likely more that everything is now God's and not a single race of people would be banned because there are no Canaanites. They are people of the Lord because everything belongs to him. It's his kingdom. Now, just because it belongs to them doesn't mean that all these people are going to be submitted to him and some of them will go through the full 1,000 years training and decide to rebel. Now, how we view the things around us is important. Unbelievers look at the supernatural and naturalize to believe in anything else but God. The world looks around, they see all this stuff, and they try and say it's climate change, it's it's just some natural thing that goes on. It's they always look for something natural. The time of tribulation they will be looking at all these great things and they will not believe that they are God. Even though there will be two witnesses going around saying this is God and showing signs about it, they will still not believe. 
Unbelievers, they look at the supernatural and naturalize to believe in anything but God. They look at the supernatural creation and then naturalize it to try and believe in anything but God. They come up with some of the stupidest theories and say, well, this is what happened. But no one was around it. And no one can factually support a single thing. It is all supposition. But they look for any natural way to not believe. That's an unbeliever. Errant believers take natural things and spiritualize them to be things from God for blessing or judgment based on their opinion. They see something happen. Oh, that must be God blessing me. If they see something bad happen, oh, it must be God judging you. And everything has a spiritual connotation. They cannot even take that anything natural can happen. That's an errant believer. It takes spiritual wisdom to see the natural things as natural and the spiritual things as spiritual. But it's important. It takes spiritual wisdom for people, Christians, to see natural things as natural things and spiritual things as spiritual things. If God says, this is from me, oh, this is from God. If God says, that's not from me, rebuke it. That's just a natural thing. Whatever it might be, it takes spiritual wisdom. But Aaron believers see everything as supernatural. Non-believers, they try and naturalize everything. There is no spiritual benefit from seeing natural things as being from God. It just takes our spiritual senses, just makes our spiritual senses dull and our inability to distinguish a difference. We need to be able to discern between natural things and things that are from God. Because if I cannot discern those two things, if I let those things blur, my sensitivity to the things of God will become weak. Of all these prophecies that we looked at tonight, there are many different witnesses that prophesy about, and I'm just listing a few things here. The healing river from Jerusalem, the continuous night, and then the continuous day. The signs in the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Messiah setting up his kingdom. Different aspects of that kingdom. We see many words coming from the Old Testament and coming from the New Testament that talk about this. No matter what may, man may say to doubt this, or so-called Christians say and teach against it, it is impossible for this end to not happen without the entire word of God being untrue and unreliable. Think about that. All these words, Old Testament, New Testament, testify to these things that are going on here in the end. If they do not happen, the word itself would fall apart. And yet there are Christians out there today that will teach against it. Do we believe God? Or do we believe what people say about God? Do we believe the ways the world will die, the way the world has defined it? Well, it's all going to end up in a flood. Well, that would be contrary to the Bible. Every single way that the world comes up with that the world ends is contrary to what the Bible says. I'm going to go with what the, what the Word says, what the, my Bible says, what God has said. What is said about the signs of the age and the things that will come up, the world will come up with explanations for them. Don't buy them. Stay with what the Word says. Understand there is a separation between us and the world. And the world will not agree with the things that we have come to learn and understand from the, from the Word of God. That's okay. That's the world. They're separate from the things of God. They can't know the things of God. They don't have the capacity because these are spiritually perceived. These are spiritually understood. The things that Zechariah has talked about here and we branched it out tonight and showed you many other places to talk about the same things. Is what the Word has prophesied. We don't know all the specifics. We know some of the things. Some of it really won't be known until it actually happens. But when it happens, oh, that's exactly what Zechariah said. It's exactly how John laid it out in the book of Revelation. We'll know for sure. Don't buy into what the world says. 
Don't super spiritualize things. It will hurt you. The devil loves it when people do that. Just as much as the devil loves it when people naturalize everything and they can't see the hand of God. See the hand of God where the hand of God is and see natural things where natural things are. And let God help you discern the difference. It will help in the way that you grow in the way that you deal with the things that are in your life. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us. We thank you for the words of prophecy that are in your holy Bible. That you give us the ability to understand these things. They can guide our life, be a light unto our path. That we will not go through this world blind, unknowing. But Father, we have our eyes opened to see and to understand and to know. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.